listening to the Bible 126 show. Well, we are in session nine of the book of Leviticus. And it, uh, unlike some of the excursions that we've been under, we're going to take just one chapter and one topic tonight. It's a very important one. Yom Kippur in the Hebrew, or the Day of Atonement, as we might know it. Now, so far in our review of Leviticus, we've studied the offerings and the priests and the role of sin and so on. But none of these have dealt in any final or complete way with sin. And now we come to that very issue which deals more completely with sin than any other subject in the Scripture. The the chapter before us, Leviticus chapter 16, is going to uh, point more completely, more adequately to the completed work of Jesus Christ in redemption. We might remember that Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17 says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of any holy day or of any new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are what? A shadow of things to come. But the bodies of Christ. A shadow of things to come. The Midrash, the Jewish uh, commentary source, makes the point that prophecy is pattern, not just prediction. This whole idea that prophecy is, is prediction and fulfillment, prediction and fulfillment, that's the Western mind. The Jewish mind recognizes there's more to it than that. The prophecy itself is prediction. And uh, no place is that more clear than, of course, in Leviticus and specifically uh, in this issue about Yom Kippur. Now, the rabbis designated the Day of Atonement with a simple word, Yoma, which means the day. To a rabbi, when you said the day, they, that could only mean one thing. That's Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It was on this day that sin was dealt with in a more adequate way, uh, way than in any other ceremony in the Mosaic system. When we look at this chapter, we'll notice in verse 16, 21, and 22, the emphasis is on all sins, not just some specific ones, on all. It's a very comprehensive uh, dealing with sin. We'll also discover that the day of Yom Kippur is observed in the seventh month uh, on the tenth day of the month. It's all down there in verse 29. We'll get to it. But these are very significant numbers in Scripture. The, the uh, seventh month is the sabbatical month. We don't think of a, you know, we think of uh, the seventh day as a sabbatical day. Indeed it is, Shabbat. But the seventh week is the counting of the Omar, the seventh week after the Feast of First Fruits. We talk about that in Pentecost and so on. We have the seventh month, which is what we're dealing with here. The month was a sabbatical month in large measure. Not observed the way it should be, probably, but that's the way it was ordained by God. And, of course, we have the seventh year. We'll be coming to that later in terms of the sabbatical year, where the whole year the land was to to rest. And we'll also talk about, before the study in Leviticus is over, with the jubilee year, which is a very strange year, because they kept weeks of years, seven of those, 49, the next year, was a jubilee year, 
but it had a peculiar characteristic. It didn't start on the New Year's Day. It started on the 10th of the month, namely on Yom Kippur. And uh, I'll just leave you with that till we get there. It's a very, it's a strange uh, specification. But it's also, as I say, the seventh month um, expresses the, uh, you know, the rest of Christ after his, his completed work at redemption. Then we have it's on the tenth day of the month. The tenth, as we try to study, the way, all these numbers seem to mean as we study how they appear in Scripture, we notice there seems to be a consistency. Seven is sort of a completeness, or a time of rest in God's case. Eight is a number of new beginnings and so forth. The tenth is typically... Uh, a number that expresses God's own will, having his way. We have ten commandments, of course. We have the tithe of the tenth. We have the remnant of Israel is defined as a tenth in Isaiah 6, 13. Um, the day of selection of the Passover lamb was on the tenth day of Nisan, four days before Passover. And the, the day of Jubilee, uh, we'll take that up later. So the tenth day, it, to the extent this points to Christ, of course, it, it, uh, it, that Christ came to do the will of God. That's really what the new number would suggest to a rabbi. And remember Isaiah 53.10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He came to do God's will. That's evident in every page of the Gospels. The Day of Atonement, the Hebrew word, of course it's Yom Kippur uh, in terms of the day, but the word it comes from gafar, which means to cover, to purge, to make atonement, to reconciliation. It's also the word, strangely, in Genesis chapter 6 that's used to talk about the pitch that covers Noah's ark, inside and out. One of the mysteries is why was the ark pitched inside and outside? And one suggestion is to preserve it so that it apparently will surface in human history once again in the future, once again to indict a disbelieving world against the coming judgment of God. But in any case, the word kafar, atonement, is used of the ark. It's also used here. And see, God did not take away the sins in the Old Testament. He covered them. Kafar. He covered them until Christ removed them. And uh, you can get that in Acts 17.30, Romans 3, Hebrews 9, lots of other places. But let's just jump into the text itself. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 16, verse 1. This first section will be the preparation of the high priest. We'll be talking about Aaron here because he was, of course, the first high priest. But what followed after him, of course, was the high priest stepped in his shoes. So where it says Aaron, you and I should remember that this is more broadly ordained, not just him personally. Verse 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they offered before the Lord and died. Many commentators feel the specificity of all the details of this day is in response to these two sons of Aaron who, were, who took strange fire in the Holy of Holies and were killed. God killed them. Nadab and Abihu. And they intruded in the Holy of Holies without uh, proper procedures and they, were, they suffered death by the direct judgment of God. That was all covered back in chapter 10. And uh, many commentators take chapter 10 and chapter 16 together. We took them in order, but some commentators will lump those together. And the Day of Atonement certainly explains the death of those two young men. Because God is very specific. He means what He says and says what He means. The utter holiness of God and the utter sinfulness of man is clear in every detail of the service. And as we talk about this incredible gulf between God and man, let's realize that on the one hand it's an incredible gulf, it's a huge gulf. On the other hand, let's realize it's been bridged. You and I have the advantage of recognizing it has been bridged. And when you come to God, 
you can come with holiness, as Hebrews chapters 4 and 10 emphasize, but only, of course, through Jesus Christ. Any other way to, have to, approach, to approach to God, other than the way he specifies, subject to death. That's what happened to Nadab and Abihu. And it should disturb us when we see a public figure pray to God in any other name than Jesus Christ. Because he is coming, attempting to come to God with his prayer by a path other than the one God has specified. There's one man, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It may sound very, very narrow, but hey, God is very, very specific. If there are any doubts about that, you should just check with Nadab and Abihu, right? Okay. Anyway, down to verse 2. The Lord said unto Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. We'll discover as every time we see the mercy seat in the scripture, it's covered with the Shekinah glory, the cloud, and it's always the picture is presented, it's as if God is sitting there. In fact, it is so specific, we'll see that when the blood is sprinkled, it's sprinkled between and in front of the mercy seat. And Ezekiel will talk about the soles of his feet there. So it doesn't mean literally the soles of the feet there necessarily, it just means that's idiomatically the presentation that uh, uh, we're to visualize there. But the main point, it says, is speak to, uh, speak to all these that they don't come... He is going to have to be alone. We're going to discover when we get to verse 17, the high priest does this whole thing on Yom Kippur, alone, by himself. The place is vacated. And that's exactly it. Jesus went to the cross alone. And that's the model that we're seeing here. This is all foreshadowing Christ. Remember Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's alone, representing us, but alone from that. That's the only time he didn't call him Father. Anyway, let's move on to verse 3. And thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock for a sin offering and a lamb for a burnt offering. And uh, incidentally, this is all after the usual offering. When you, get to, when you go into Numbers 29, it details the offerings on Yom Kippur. They aren't mentioned here, but there are seven lambs that were offered to, to indicate the complete offering to God that was being made that day. Verse 4, And he shall put on the holy linen coat, and he shall leave the linen breeches upon his flesh, and shall be girded with a linen girdle, and with a linen miter shall he be attired. These are holy garments, therefore shall he wash his flesh in water, and so put them on. He puts aside his very, very elegant uh, breastplate and ephod and all of that, and puts on plain linen, because he's going to end up representing the people. Verse 5, And he shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two of the goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. So before he does anything else, he's got to make an offering for himself, because he's coming before the Lord. He's a sinner too. So he makes that offering for himself and for his house. And many commentators believe that when he says his house, he means all the priests. Because see, all the priests were descendants, were not only Levites, they were descendants of Aaron. And so when he says his house, that can be a very, very broad category. But in any case, he has to do that first. Now this particular part of the ceremony on Yom Kippur has no counterpart with the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he had no sin. Aaron, before he can qualify to do the job of the high priest, he has to go through this procedure as we learned in the first few chapters of Leviticus, so you get into offerings. But there, this is not prophetic in a, in a parallel sense with Christ, because he had no sin. Nowhere 
do we find in the Scripture any offering made for Christ Himself. It's very subtle but very important because He had no sin. No offering for Himself. When he was, when, when Mary took the baby to the temple, they offered the two turtle doves. That wasn't for Him. That was for her to remind her that she was a sinner. My apologies to the Catholics. But that's what the Scripture consistently points out, that she had to be reminded she was a sinner. Now that prepares him. Now we're going to prepare the place. Let's go to verse 7. And he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. There are two goats here. They're going to be together in a combined model we'll get into. Uh, They're not separate offerings. They're really one offering, but done in a very strange way, only on Yom Kippur. There's a very special procedure forthcoming here. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. By the way, if you visit Israel, if you go to Jerusalem, one of the things you'll most likely include in your visit is a trip to the Temple Institute, where they are making. They've made uh, 63 of the 93 implements that are to be used in the coming temple. Uh, And these these are not museum pieces or just training devices. These are intended to be actually used by the priests in the temple when it's rebuilt. But one of the things they'll show you is a lottery box that's been designed for just this purpose, to pick which of these two goats will be the one for the Lord, and which one will be the scapegoat. One of them is going to be offered to the Lord, the other one is going to be led out to the wilderness, the so-called scapegoat, the Azazel. We'll get to that in a minute. Okay, so, so Aaron shall bring the goat, verse 9, uh, upon which the Lord's lot fell, and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself. And he shall take a censer full of burning coals from the fire off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and he shall bring it within the veil. Again, he's got his hands full here. He's, he's done the offering on the, on, the bra- on the brazen altar. But he takes some of those coals and he takes some incense and he goes in uh, behind the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, and that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. You know, we can only imagine the tension here. He's alone. Nobody to support him. He's obviously practiced and rehearsed every detail because he understands that God is very serious about this procedure. He wants to make sure he doesn't do something wrong. Very tense. If he messes up, apparently he'll go the way Nadab and Abihu did. And uh, there's no record I know of of a priest getting killed by not doing it right, but that's the threat, and that's the you can just imagine the tension he's feeling as he goes through this procedure. Now it's interesting that this fragrance of the incense is drawn out by the fire, and that's to show that the uh, acceptance is affected by justice itself. In fact, Monarch says this so well in his commentary, says, the very fire that preyed upon the bullock till it was consumed into ashes is that which causes this fragrance to be felt. The very righteousness that sought for an atonement delights to proclaim that the law is magnified, Jehovah is glorified, and the sinner is justified. It's interesting that the offering of incense is always accompanied with prayer. When we get to the book of Revelation, we see the 24 elders with their incense and so forth. Psalm 141, too, has the same idiom and so forth. 
In some subtleties here, in, Re- in Revelation 5, 8, the saints have golden vials, not censers, which implies that uh, these prayers are not intercessory for others, they're prayers for themselves in anticipation of being presented directly to the high priest. There's subtleties there, but it's interesting how those subtleties are consistent through the Scripture. Anyway, verse 14. And he shall take the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward, and before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times. Notice something there. He sprinkles it upon the mercy seat and in front, before, in front of the mercy seat. And there's a lot there. And in the interest of not derailing our study tonight, um, let me point you to our briefing package called the Seat of Mercy. Uh, the main th- things to be alert here is that the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant are two distinct elements of the tabernacle. The mercy seat happens to sit on the Ark of the Covenant, so we always look at it as a lid, and we are guilty, I think, often, of lumping to- the two together as a single item. The Ark of the Covenant is made of wood covered with gold, laminated with gold. The mercy seat was solid gold. And um, there is the possibility that that relic from the past is presently being protected in Ethiopia. Not by the legends that accompany, the colorful legends that accompany that, but in Second Chronicles 35, verse 3 and following. There's a very, very interesting set of clues that suggest that the ark may indeed be there by a path that's a little different than the common legends. But what's interesting about that is the Ethiopians believe that it's their destiny to present whatever it is they got to the Messiah when he rules from Mount Zion. And... Uh, we find that whole thing echoed in Acts chapter 8 when Philip is miraculously caused to intervene with the Ethiopian treasurer as he returns from Jerusalem puzzled. And what's that all really about? And we'll let you look that up in our, in our briefings. But there's a very, very interesting possibility that there may be a huge prophetic event here that will alter our whole perspective of the millennial reign. There, are, there seems to be a lot of scripture uh, suggesting that the mercy seat will be the throne from which Christ rules when he takes charge in the millennium. Interesting possibilities. We'll look at, just investigate it for yourself, see what you think. Verse 15, Then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring his blood within the veil, and do that with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. There it is again. Verse 16, and he shall make an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. So shall he do for the tabernacle and the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Let's look at that carefully. He's making atonement for the holy place itself. Why? Because it had priests there doing their thing every day. And so it also, the presence of the guilty, uh, defiles the courts. The bringing in of their representative, the people's representative, is regarded as a defilement. And that's what Hebrews chapter 9 points to rather clearly. To Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 23, uh, the writer says, It was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. So we don't think it, we always think this, you know, sin's an earthly thing. No, even the pattern in the heavens be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. In other words, these are just shadows or models. The real sacrifice, of course, is the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Because you get in verse 24, uh, next verse, he says, For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are but figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Very exciting. If you Remember Hebrews 9 and 10. They're your detailed commentary on Leviticus chapter 16. But we'll move on here. Now, Aaron adopts the same ritual with this goat that's been killed as he did with the bullock earlier. Now, the two goats that we're going to talk about, one's been offered, one's still alive. These two goats constitute a single offering. And each of them represented a distinct aspect of the remission of sin. One, of course, is offered as a sin offering. The other, and he's called a Azazel. The odds for the goat and Zazel is to, means to depart or go away. It's the scapegoat. He is going to be taken into the wilderness. And the Septuagint, Martin Luther, Kellogg, Bonar, all the experts indicate that these that it means an entire and utter removal is a whole concept behind the so-called scapegoat. In fact, Adersheim says it's to wholly go away, W-H-O-I, you know, uh, completely go away. Now, it was selected by Lot. The other one was killed, and he was selected by Lot. And as I say, you can see the lottery box when you get to the temple, take a look at what, how they actually mechanically cast this lot. Um, but before anything was done to the goats, the high priest had to enter the Holy of Holies, with the blood of the bullock for himself and for his house. And he only went in one day a year, but he went in twice. See, once for himself and once for the whole nation. So he actually enters twice, but it's on that one day. Now what's the model here for Christ? Christ was made sin for us on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says he was made sin for us. We have no ability, I think, to imagine what that means. We're so glib, so casual, even though as we study these things, we tend to not appreciate the purity, the righteousness, the glory, the majesty, the holiness of Jesus Christ. He was the creator of the universe. He was without sin. He was perfect, complete. As the Bible tries to get across to us, especially in Leviticus, this man is a sinner. Man's a sinner. Beyond hope, except with God's intervention. We say that so glibly, and yet it's, there's such a staggering distance, incomprehensible gulf between us and God. But that's been bridged by Jesus Christ. But the way it was is that He was made sin for us. We can't imagine what that means. We can't even fully embrace the two extremes. In the first case, we certainly can't put them together in an action of some kind. And of course, this is the counterpart Christ being made sin to us, as to the brazen altar in the tabernacle. Then, after he did that, he, as our, our great high priest, he entered heaven um, and offered his own blood for our sins. At that point, the throne of God is our mercy seat. So the, the model is very, very clear. Now, Aaron, as you can imagine, was executing these rituals each year with great apprehension. He must have been very, his own sons, the memory of their death was very clear in his mind. He had to be very nervous. What should our attitude be? Strangely enough, Hebrews 4.16, we are bidden to come to the throne boldly. Why? Because Christ has made, paved the way. He's paid the price. It's staggering to realize that you and I are bidden to approach the throne of God boldly. 
Do we do that? Or do we timidly mouth a few petitions now and then as we call it a prayer? Do we really avail ourselves of access to the throne of the ruler of the universe? Which one, if one understands it, would approach with great nervousness. And yet, because of Christ, we are bidden to go boldly before the throne. Anyway, after Aaron, after he'd uh, gone in for himself in his house, he then was to go into the, into the Holy of Holies for his people. Let's go to verse 17. There shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place, until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household and for all the congregation of Israel. Again, the emphasis on his doing it alone. Verse 18. And he shall go out into the altar that is before the Lord and make an atonement for it, and for it, for the altar, see. And it shall take the blood of the bullock and the, of the blood of the goat and put it upon the horns of the altar round about. The altar had horns, but horns was also idiomatically the, the symbol of authority and power. It comes from the animal world because you know, the horns were a measure of the animal's prowess, if you will. So that term becomes idiomatic to be strength or authority. <clears throat> And he shall sprinkle the blood upon it with his finger seven times and cleanse it and hallow it from the uncleanness of the children of Israel. See, even, even the brazen altar needs to have the blood applied to it because this is where the sins of Israel were uh, uh, confessed and atoned. It, in other words, the, the altar was polluted because of the sins of the people. And all of this, by the way, is intended to remind us of the one who died on the cross. And be careful about this. It's not the cross that's critical. It's the one who died on the cross that's critical. We use that cross uh, idiom a little broadly. It's, let's, it, it's not the cross that's important. It's the one who died on the cross. And that's what, what First Peter emphasizes in First Peter 1.18 and also in the Hebrews 9 passage we read. In fact... That's too important. Let me go ahead and let's go there. Let's first Peter chapter one, verse eighteen and nineteen. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, from your vain manner of life received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these times, those times for you, and so on. You know, many people are embarrassed or distressed by the emphasis of the blood of Christ, or the blood of these offerings, but especially the blood of Christ. And that's tragic because that's the key. We need to understand how precious that blood is, and we need to understand that it was shed for you and me. Verse 20. And when he had made an end of reconciling the holy place, and the tabernacle of the congregation, and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat, and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions, and all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness. And the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities, unto a land not inhabited, and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. Strange procedure. They put their hands on the goat, which means the goat is now identified as having the sins of the people, all the sins of the nation. 
Now, there's obviously passages of that that identify with Christ. And uh, the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all, from Isaiah 53, verse 6, and elsewhere. You know, it's been suggested, I think Ambrose suggested, that the thief knew that those wounds in the body of Christ were not the wounds of Christ, but the wounds of the thief. He bore our sins. Now, what they did, they got a fit man to take the scapegoat and lead him out into the wilderness until it disappeared in the wilderness. And that's alluded to all through the Scripture in a number of places. We don't have to go track all those down. It's interesting. The whole idea is that the sins are forever removed. What does the Scripture say? From As far as the east is from the west. I think that's terrific. It doesn't say from the north and the south, because the north and the south are only 8,000 miles apart. But how far is the east from the west? So you can go eastward forever. You go westward forever. So they're both indeterminately distant, so to speak. That's what the idiom really means. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins from us. And that's what the scapegoat is intended to dramatize for the people, that their sins on that goat are gone, never again to be seen. That's the concept. Faith transfers our sins. Christ removes the sins and God forgets them. What a blessing. Verse 23. And Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of the congregation and shall put off the linen garments which he had put on when he went into the holy place, and shall leave them there. And he shall wash his flesh with water in the holy place, and put on his garments, and come forth, and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. The ritual of Yom Kippur is now over. In a sense, all that's left to do now is wash up. And this, of course, has no counterpart with Christ. This is where the model breaks down, so to speak. See, when Christ's work was finished, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. That's obviously not what's going on here. This is a wrap-up for the ritual. The, the, the modeling, the parallelism breaks down here. Verse 25. And the fat of the sin offering shall he burn upon the altar. That's the fat, the two kidneys, and the fat that's on them. If you remember from chapter 3, verse 10, we talked about that back then. And all the fat on the innards. See this blazing flame then. Uh, declaring the dedication of the whole hearts, the idea, the inmost desires. That's what the innards are supposed to be. And all sent up in one flame before God. Brings us down to verse 26. And he that let go the goat for the scapegoat shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water and afterward come into the camp. This guy had a strange errand. He had to be a fit guy. Had to have no interest in the goat, obviously. No no hidden agenda here. His job was to get that goat out into the wilderness where he would be lost forever. Strange ritual when you think about it. But it gets across, it gets across to the people that their sins are on that goat and that, that goat is gone. It's gone forever, not to come back. Verse 27, the bullock for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering and the, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall one carry forth without the camp, and they shall burn in the fire their skins and their flesh and their dung. And he that burneth him shall wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in water, and afterward he shall come in to the camp. Anything that was contaminated uh, by contact with the live goat had to be cleansed. And the carcasses of the bullock and the goat uh, were taken outside and burned. And the people that even did that, they had to then wash themselves and go through their cleansing. See, God is doing this whole procedure, this whole ritual, this, I don't want to call it a celebration because it has a very somber overtone. It's not exactly, you didn't run around and say, Merry Yom Kippur. 
wasn't that kind of a holiday. One of affliction, one of, of being seriously concerned with your sin. But God is really impressing on them through all these things, but especially in Yom Kippur, that they were sinners. Boy, we need to get that across. We need to understand that. That we're lost sinners and He is showing that He is holy and that sin separates us from God. And it's through God's initiative and these elaborate arrangements that He repairs that gulf, or bridges that gulf, I should say. In verse 29, And this shall be a statute forever unto you, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, ye shall afflict your souls, and do no work at all, whether it be one of your own country, or a stranger that sojourneth among you. For on that day shall the priest make an atonement for you, and to cleanse you, that ye may be clean from all your sins before the Lord. That's quite a phrase, by the way. Let's stop and think about that. All your sins. This isn't coming up before, you know, the, the burnt offering with a specific misstep or problem you've got. That indeed they did too. But this is that one day a year where everything, everything was taken care of. And that's what Christ did. You know, it's, it's amazing how Satan works. You know, his first attempt with us is to get us to not really buy into the fact that we're sinners. Well, we're really not so bad, you know. We're as good as the next guy. All those lame excuses. But then once we discover the gospel, once we begin to realize we're sinners, Satan goes the other way. When you stumble or you, you really mess up, Satan whispers in your ear, boy, now you've done it. Christ died for all your sins until you accepted him. But now look what you did. You accepted him at that rally a year ago or whatever. Now look what you got yourself into. You're beyond his reach now. That's what Hal Lindsey likes to call the guilt trip. And Satan likes to put us on a guilt trip. And when that happens, remember this question. How many of your sin, when Christ hung on that cross, how many of your sins were yet future? The answer is all of them. All of them. We tend to have this presumption, this mentality that Christ died for all our sins up until the day that we accept Christ. But from here on, boy, we better watch our, our P's and Q's. No, no, no. Yes, indeed, the Holy Spirit will lead us in a path that should cause a change of life, and indeed there should be fewer stumbles. But there still will be stumbles because the flesh is still there. The big difference is that, according to Romans 6, sin ain't going to reign no more. <laughs> We're no longer under the rule of sin. We can have victory through the Holy Spirit as long as we are walking in the Spirit. And we do that imperfectly. But as we stumble and as we, as we get burdened by the realities that we really blew that situation, remember, Christ paid for that too. And you need to remember what I love to call the Christian's bar of soap. 1 John 1, nine. Just want to remember that. 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice that verse. It's His faithfulness that we cling to, not ours. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Incredible. See, the seventh month 
I take it from this passage, is to be as memorable as the seventh day of the week. And by the way, Isaiah really reproves Israel for their neglected observance of this holy day. The, most of the chapter 58, he hammers away. And it's not obvious to read carefully what he's talking about. He's talking about Yom Kippur. He's talking about the seventh month. I'm not talking about a single day. I'm talking about the month. He also may be referring to the times of the Jubilee, which also began on the evening of Yom Kippur. And that's a strange thing, because the Jubilee year is an annualized thing. Why wouldn't it start at the beginning of the year? No, it starts at ten days later, at Yom Kippur. We'll deal with that when we get there. That's when they, you gave to the poor a whole bunch of things that Exodus 23, verse 11 details, some of the things that should be involved in our, in our observance of Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. Now, obviously, this is intended for Jewish households, but we need to understand it, because by understanding it, we get a glimpse of what was foreshadowing Jesus Christ himself. Well, we're down to verse 32. We're getting close to the end here. And the priest, whom he shall anoint, whom he shall anoint and whom he shall consecrate to minister in the priest's office in his father's stead, shall make the atonement and shall put on the linen clothes, even the holy garments, and he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation and for the altar, and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the congregation. In other words, when Aaron's gone, his replacement will to step in the role of the high priest. That's what he's saying. And this shall be an everlasting statute to you to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. And he did, as the Lord commanded Moses. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is the only day of mourning and fasting which God gave his people. It's not a day of celebration. It's a day of contrition and affliction for sin. And this is the basis of fasting in the Old Testament anyway. And the day was to be observed until the permanent and eternal sacrifice for sin came. And that, of course, was fulfilled by Jesus Christ and his death. I'd like to close with the words of a hymn. You know, it's, it's just tragic in a sense that so much of the modern Christian music is really intended to be just praise, and it's well-meaning, and sometimes the music is very contemporary, and that's fine, except it's amazing how it's stripped of any theology. And, and uh, that's one of the great things about the, the great old hymns. They may be dated in their musical style, but boy, were they rich in their expression. And I remember when I was in, uh, I had occasion to uh, lead a... Uh, a prophecy week study in uh, Macbeth's castle in Scotland. Fun kind of time was there for quite, it was an interesting time. But as I really mixed with the, the Scottish Presbyterians, I was intrigued at how they loved to sing. At lunch, they'd sing seven or eight songs before having lunch. And, and, uh, they just loved to sing. But often we chide the old, you know, the old Presbyterians for not really being teaching the word kind of thing. And I realized that on, I'm not just, I'm not condoning that on the one hand. On the other hand, I also realized how much Scripture they get in their songs. These were rich, instructive hymns. And I can remember growing up, uh, I spent a good bit, bit of time in a, in, in a denominational church as a teenager, and those great hymns are incredibly dear. Boy, do they, how, how much we learn from that. Holy, holy Lord God Almighty. Boy, there's the book of Revelation in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in four, four stanzas. Anyway, uh, man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners do reclaim. 
Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed by pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Final atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted height. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song we'll sing. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Yom Kippur. In many, many respects, the most hallowed day of the Jewish calendar. One ancient rabbi says the Jewish catechism is his calendar. And this is our first exposure to that in the book of Leviticus. When we get to, this is chapter 16, when we get to Leviticus 23, we're going to discover that the whole calendar, this one at this day included, is a profile of God's plan for mankind. We'll discover that each of the seven feasts of Moses has a specific historical commemorative role, but we'll also be startled to realize that it also has a prophetic role that's very specific and uh, uh, and incredibly instructive. And so this is our first exposure. We've got Yom Kippur, which is very special, sort of set aside. We're going to discover there's seven feasts. Three feasts in the first month of their year. Three feasts in the seventh month. We've taken the, the second of those three in the seventh month. The first is the Feast of uh, Trumpets and the first of Tishri. It happens to be coincident with Rosh Hashanah, their new year, their civil new year, but they're, those are, that's a coincidence in a sense. They're two different kinds of celebrations. And Yom Kippur on the 10th day, and then five days later, on the 15th of the South month, we have the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths. We'll talk about that when we get there. In the first month, we have Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of Firstfruits. And all three of those speak specifically of the first coming of Christ. In fact, are not only are they, were they fulfilled, they were fulfilled on the very day they're observed, which is very provocative. The last three that point to his second coming. And between these two groups of three, there's one right in the middle called Feast of Shavuot, Feast of Pentecost in the Greek, uh, Hag Shavuot in the Hebrew. And it's recognized that was the birth of the church. It's the only feast that, in which they have leavened bread, and that's very Gentile in its complexion. Only feast that leavened bread is ordained. But, um, and of course, it's widely recognized because in Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church was when? On the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Shavuot. What most people don't take into consideration is a tradition, at least, that Enoch was born on that same day, and he's a type of the church. He was raptured, if you will. But there's a strange tradition among the Jews that I haven't been able to track the source of it, except it's probably from Gematria is that, uh, that uh, Enoch was translated or raptured on his birthday, on the same day they celebrate Hag Shavuot. And I find that very, very provocative, because if Enoch is in fact a type of the church, in the sense that he was removed before the judgment of the flood, no one is eight, or protected through the flood, but Enoch was removed prior to. Many people see that as sort of symbolic or foreshadowing of the rapture. Well, if that's the case, is it possible that the church is going to be raptured on its birthday? I don't know. But we'll explore some of that when we get to chapter 23. Uh, it'll be kind of fun. We'll get into that then. But in the meantime, for next time, we, we had a light evening tonight because I felt the subject's heavy enough that we want to just make Yom Kippur the subject for tonight. So we took just one chapter. 
We'll try to make up our schedule a little bit. Next time we're going to read from 17 to 20. 17, 18, 19, and 20. Four chapters. If you'll read from 17 to 20 between now and next Thursday, uh, we'll zip through some of those uh, provocative, strange uh, ordinances that God has included. Let's stand for a word, closing word of prayer. Oh, Father, we we come before your throne particularly conscious of our sin, Father. We are indeed but dust and ashes. Indeed, we're guilty of ingratitude. We're guilty of presumption, especially on your goodness and your provision. We also, as we examine our life and Clarity, we realize that we have found more ways to offend you than we can possibly number. Oh, Father, we are undone as we really come to grips with the many ways we have failed to be obedient to your word. Guilty of sins of commission, of course, but also guilty of sins of omission through our negligence and apathy and indifference. So, Father, we come before your throne, mindful of these sins, and bringing them before you, Father, in accordance with your instructions. And as we do so, we're awed, Father, that you have gone to such extremes to give us this opportunity to lay these at the foot of the cross. We thank you, Father, that there has been that ultimate sacrifice that has our personal names on it, that Jesus paid specifically for each of our sins, for each of us. How can we possibly embrace that truth? But Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have paid the price so that we might have access to you that we might have an eternity in your presence. Wow, Father, we just thank you. But Father, we would also ask that through your Holy Spirit, you would not only cleanse us, forgive us and cleanse us, but you would also illuminate for us ourselves and the path before us. Help us in response, Father to be more responsive to your will in our lives. Help us, Father, to reprioritize our lives so that the important will take precedent over the urgent, that we might be more fruitful stewards in the days that remain. As we come before you, Father, pleading the shed blood of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.